From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I feel like cookbooks are both manuals that, you know, like instruction manuals, but they are also snapshots in time. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and you're tuning in on day three of our baking week. And you just heard from today's guest, Leah Koenig. Now, Leah has written more than half a dozen cookbooks, including the one we're here to talk about today, The Little Book of Jewish Sweets. It's a small volume packed with several dozen cookies, cakes, and other types of Jewish sweets. And it's the third in a series of books that Leah wrote on Jewish feasts, Jewish appetizers, and now sweets. As Leah writes in the introduction, from the apples that get dipped into honey on Rosh Hashanah, or the cinnamon and allspice that perfume Sephardi stews, sweetness is woven into the fabric of Jewish cuisine. And, she asks, what could be more delightful than closing a meal with a slice of almond-scented babka, a nutty, syrupy, drenched square of baklava, or a fudgy sliver of sesame halva? Those are exactly the recipes Leah explores in this book, and we'll talk with her in today's episode about how she got into cookbook writing, about this volume of Jewish Sweets, and of course, a Salt and Spine game to wrap it all up. That's today on day three of Salt and Spine Baking Week 2019. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Leah Koenig joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Leah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for joining us today on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having me. Yes. So (laughs) we're here to talk about your latest, and I believe this is your sixth cookbook, if I'm counting right. It will be my fifth, but the sixth is coming out in September. Okay. So you're you're right. (laughs) Fifth cookbook, sixth on the way. And and this is the Little Book of Jewish Sweets, which is part of a trilogy, Mm -hmm. correct? There's three of these little books on Jewish food. So we'll come back to that and some of your other books, but I want to start with you and a little bit about how you got to where you are today uh, as a cookbook author. You, I think, sort of came to food and food writing from a unique path, right? You were sort of working in nonprofits, I think, yeah, and moved that way. How did you sort of approach uh, or make that move into food writing as a career? Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like a lot of food writers of my generation don't necessarily set out to be food writers. I think that's sure. changing now. But um, so for me, the, the path started... Um, I worked for an environmental nonprofit uh, okay. called Hazon. It was, it's actually a Jewish environmental nonprofit. So uh-huh. there's like the connection of Jewish and, um, thinking about the earth in sustainable ways. And, um, I ran food related programming for them. So I ran a CSA program that partnered synagogues and farms. And, you know, the synagogue would be where the produce got dropped off and then sure. they do educational stuff around it. Um, and I ran, uh, their first food conference and, um, eventually they started a blog called the Jew and the carrot. Okay. Um, which I was, uh, one of the kind of founding editors of. Okay. Um, and you know, I just at some point realized that the nonprofit world was great, but it wasn't, I, I wanted to be on the reporting side of things that, you know, I would get sometimes um, interviewed about the work I was doing. And I was always like, Oh, I want to be on the asking side, not on the answering side. Right. Um, so at a certain point, I just decided to transition and, you know, it was, uh, it was a hard move as for all people who are going from a job to a freelance life. Um, you know, it's, sure. it's a financial decision yes. and all that stuff. But, um, you know, that was 10 years ago and I haven't looked back. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, my interest in food kind of stemmed from the environmental side of things and sustainability. And, um, I was sort of like the Michael Pollan generation, you know, uh-huh. like Omnivore's yep. Dilemma came up out right around then. Um, so for me, like food was always about, um, the connection to farming and also a connection to culture and heritage. And so for me that, you know, I grew up Jewish and, uh-huh. um, so that, that was kind of just where my interest was, um, like the foods I had grown up eating and finding the stories out behind them and all of that. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah. And can you talk more about the role food played in your life when you were growing up? What sorts of foods were you, do you, are there particular food memories or yeah. what role did it have? And was there an interest for you in food early on? So I always laugh. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was a very picky kid. Okay. Um, I have a picky kid now. So I'm okay. like very like, okay, he'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was definitely like a macaroni and butter type of kid for uh-huh. a lot of years. Okay. Um, but. Uh, my mom was a great cook and she, you know, I grew up in the 1980s and, you know, it was like the Lunchables years right. and, you know, Gushers and whatever, oh, yes. all that yep. stuff. Um, the, the best food. <laughs> I mean, I still crave a Gusher every now and then. I know. I, know. <laughs> I have no idea what's in them, but. <laughs> oh God, probably better Don't not to know. know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so my town where I grew up, um, just outside of Chicago, it's called Oak Park, Illinois. Okay. They had a farmer's market. Um, so we would go to the farmer's market in, you know, the 80s when it wasn't really cool to do that yet. Right. Um, so I have these very strong memories of my mom, like, you know, picking out the right corn and kind of like squeezing all the tomatoes and um, the like amazing fresh donuts that were there every every week. So that was definitely a formative um, thing for me. And she also, you know, we did not have like fake maple syrup in the house. She uh-huh. was very much a quality, like she wanted things to be like real food. I mean, we did have our fair share of like, you know, toaster strudels and whatnot, sure. yeah. <laughs> the microwavable stuff. But, right. but she definitely influenced my, um, awareness of like just food. Um, uh huh. Then that, that stuck with me for a long time. And she also cooked Jewish food on the holidays. So, you know, her brisket was incredible. Her potato latkes were, you know, the ones that I still make today and are in yeah. variations are in my books. Um, uh, we made hamantashen every year, the little cookies on Purim. So there, right. there were definitely a lot of um, formative kind of Jewish food memories in there too. And were you interested in cooking when you were a kid or more just enjoying the food? Yeah, I was not particularly interested in cooking. Uh-huh. And also my mom was very much like the kitchen was her domain. So I always just sort of felt like on the outskirts of that. Okay. Um, so I wasn't. It was really when I got to college. Um, I went to uh, Middlebury in Vermont uh-huh. and I lived in like a hippie co-op. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we had like 17 housemates and then would cook dinner for whoever wanted to come every night. Um, and that could be like 30 people or 40 even. So I learned to kind of cook for a crowd before I learned to cook, um, for a small, smaller number of sure. people. And that was really when my love of cooking started. And you're a self-taught cook. You haven't been professionally trained. No. And that's sort of when you started to cook in college more sort of seriously. Yeah. And how are you learning to cook at that time? Are you relying on family? Are you looking at cookbooks? Are you? It was both. It was both. I mean, a lot of the people I lived with did grow up cooking. And Uh so I watched a lot. I mean, I didn't actually cook for the first couple of months. I would like sign up for, you know, cleanup duty instead of cooking because I was so intimidated. But, you know, I watched how one housemate like made bread every week and another one was like, you know, knew how to make pad thai really well. So I kind of just like learned by, by watching them. Um, but I remember the first meal that I cooked was actually out of the Moose Woods, um, uh-huh. low fat cookbook. I don't know why that one was on the shelves, okay. but it was like yeah. a macaroni and cheese and a gazpacho or something. And I remember just feeling like 
like feeling so triumphant after it came out somewhat successfully. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, when I look back at it now, I'm probably like, Oh, it would have, it would have been not so great, but, right. um, but yeah, that was like an important moment. Yeah. So you decide to become a food writer and mm-hmm. a cookbook writer, cookbook author. Did you know right away that you were going to focus on Jewish food? No. Um, and in a fact, in a sense, I, I, um, I resisted it for a while okay. because you don't ever want to be pigeonholed, um, or I didn't want to be pigeonholed, um, as like a Jewish food writer. It didn't feel like it was serious enough, um, to, to be just focusing on that. Um, Interesting. Maybe, Why not serious enough? I don't know, because I think Jewish food in this, in America until recently has always been sort of thought of as being like, boring and heavy and uh-huh. not that exciting and very, you know, kind of provincial or whatever. Um, so, you know, I think that's changing in a pretty significant way now, but back then I just kind of felt like embarrassed by that. Um, but I was also really curious, um, you know, and, and I started to kind of scratch the surface of some of the foods that I had grown up eating and question, why are these the foods and, you know, what, what's significant about them and why this holiday do we have this and that? Um, and so that for me was where it started to get really interesting. Um, and eventually, you know, the more I did it, the more I realized Jewish food's actually a global cuisine. It's not just the Eastern European dishes that I grew up with. Uh-huh. Um, it's, you know, there's, I, I joke now that Jews have lived and cooked besides Antarctica, pretty much everywhere in the world. Right. And so there are cuisines from all of those places, from Mexico, from China, from, you know, from Ethiopia, from India. So um, it's really an endlessly fascinating uh, mosaic of a cuisine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I tapped into. Yeah. And you've sort of t- approached all of your books with a very research mindset, as you've mm-hmm. noted. Are there things that really surprised you or sort of like misconceptions about Jewish food on the whole that you've really sort of worked um to push back on or like, um, include in your books in some way? Yeah. Two things. I think, um, one is the idea that Eastern European food is all brown, heavy and greasy. Uh Um, it's, it's really not, there was a, 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 profound summer kitchen in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, they did have summer there. So there were sour cherries and there was, you know, sorrel that, and pickles and like all black radish and like all of these like fresh vegetables that, um, were really important to people cooking there. And we kind of lost that when the food came to America because a lot of the foods that we idolize are sort of, um, the, the, the ritual foods, the holiday foods, right. the ones that cook forever and, um, you know, have like the soul food quality to them. Yeah. Um, so I, I always try to like bring out the freshness, especially cause that's how we eat in 21st century America, right? Sure. Like, um, the fresh, bright flavors. So I try to highlight that. Um, and the other big kind of misconception that I think people have about Jewish food is that it's static. Um, that it's like never changed since, you know, the time of like the Torah to now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and really like, it's one of the most, it's a cuisine that evolves all the time and has to evolve to survive because Jews move or are forced out of places or, you right. know, whatever the history has been. Um, so wherever they go, you know, the, the dishes that they take with them then become, uh, kind of re, like, I don't know what the word is. They, they evolve in, in where they are. Yeah. Like one of my favorite examples is, is Mexico City right now. There's okay. something like, there's tens of thousands of Jews living in Mexico City, uh-huh. most of them from Eastern European um, background. I mean, there's Jews from other par- other hist- parts of history um, there too. But um, so they do things like you know matzo ball soup, 
But they top it with um, diced white onion and avocado and cilantro, the okay. way uh, like a Mexican um, traditional soup would be topped. Sure. Or they like simmer it with, you know, like a chipotle pepper or something. So right. it's just there's – and that's just one example of many of taking sort of an indigenous uh, – flavor and melding it with um with something that was traditional to them and to me that's like the most exciting part of jewish cuisine is how it just constantly evolves right yeah that's so fascinating so how did you decide to write your first cookbook then i think you wrote your first cookbook in 2011 yes 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 um that was a book that sort of um came to me through a friend who was originally uh, Adina Sussman. She's another wonderful uh-huh. food author. Yeah. Um, who has a new book out also. Yes. Sababa. Yes. Um, so she. Out soon. Yes. Or out, out now when this airs, probably. Uh, yes, I think <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so she kind of passed that opportunity along to me. Um, okay. And uh, I am forever grateful because it was uh, working with Hadassah, which is a, a Jewish women's organization. Right. Um, so it was, and they're kind of known for, um, doing these kind of regional community cookbooks where like women would send in, um, recipes and then, you know, like someone would edit them into a book, but uh-huh. this was like a national book with, you know, with a, with a particular author. Yeah. Um, so it was just a really great first opportunity. And I don't think I had, um, the chops quite yet to, I think it's a okay. good cookbook, but like, it was very much like my, my, my starter cookbook. Sure, right. Um, I still love it. And I think there's some great recipes in there, but you know, yeah. um, that was kind of the first. Yeah. And I wasn't familiar with the, um, regional versions of the Hadassah cookbooks. I, oh, I didn't yeah. have exposure to them, um, before sort of preparing for this interview. Tell us a little bit about those and what that was like. I imagine you looked at a lot of those as yeah. you were working on your book and sort of pulled, influence or maybe even pulled directly from some of them um so there's a couple that are quite famous within the jewish world i think like the rochester new york one is Uh really famous and maybe there's like a california one that's really well Uh known um but it's you know it's like any other community cookbook that a a church or a school or whatever would put out where you know they they really pull from their membership and it it really becomes as much a cultural artifact as an actual cookbook um you know some of the recipes that i found in the book you know, some of the, some of the Hadassah books were from the fifties or sixties. So you're seeing like canned cream of mushroom soup right. and all the kind of 1950s <laughs> convenience foods yes. making their way into, into Jewish cuisine. Um, so, you know, I didn't necessarily pull from those recipes, but I definitely pulled inspiration. Um, and also just the idea of like wanting the book to reflect, um, how Jews ate today. Yeah. So, yeah. Although that book is, is not, um, it's an everyday cookbook that's kosher. So it's not necessarily Jewish recipes, um, in the same way that my other ones are, like, right. um, culturally Jewish recipes. Right. Although I tried to, you know, include ingredients that felt Jewish in some way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're here with your third of this, this trilogy yeah. that you've been working on for a couple of years now. The little book of started with Jewish appetizers and then second one was Jewish feasts and now sweets. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to sort of, um, do a three part cookbook like this or three cookbook series and approach them in this sort of, I think really fun and unique little, like physically sort of small little handheld yeah. books, yeah. um, on those sort of, um, those sort of focuses within the cuisine. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the books are with Chronicle uh-huh. books and, um, the book that I did prior to them, modern Jewish cooking was sort of my, like my, my first really kind of big book for me, right. uh, for my, for my career. Um, and it's the one that I sort of can still consider to be like my touch tone, like, book. Okay. um, and so we were kind of talking about, um, what to, 
how to follow that up. And, you know, we kind of were like, what did we miss in modern Jewish cooking that we kind of want to play with? Um, and we came up with this, with this series idea as, you know, everyone's got so many books on their bookshelves, right. you know, so many cookbooks. Um, and you don't necessarily want every recipe in the book. So we were like, what if we kind of made like an a la carte series? Like you could kind of collect all three or right. you could just have like, <laughs> you know, just the appetizer section or just the feasts, which is, you know, main dishes uh-huh. or just the sweets. Um, and then the idea was to really just like encapsulate the world of Jewish cooking for that one category within 25 kind of well curated recipes. Yeah. Um, so I really try to like get the breadth of global cuisine, Jewish cuisine in these tiny little books. Um, sure. And so it's just nice to, ha- it was nice to have the opportunity to really just delve into like what makes Jewish appetizers so special? Like what is it about um, feasting in the Jewish tradition that I want to capture? And then for sweets, you know, like, how, you know, how do you end the meal in right. a way that feels exciting, but also like very, very Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. What was that process like trying to narrow down recipes to, I think you said there's 25 in each. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. Um, because obviously like there are so many things we had to cut out. Uh-huh. Um, and there were in some cases like in appetizers, there's, a a, a mock chopped liver recipe. So a vegetarian chopped liver, which okay. is, which is in and of itself has become a really important Jewish recipe. Um, pe- people love chopped liver so much that they had to make a version that they could eat with a dairy meal if they keep kosher. Right. Um, but you know, someone was like, why don't you have like regular chopped liver? Or, so there were some of those conversations that, um, we had to have. And so, you know, I don't think they're probably perfect, but I think I, I, I really tried to, um, represent both kind of the global, you know, the global Jewish kitchen, but also kind of like what people would actually want to eat. So that's what I, that's kind of how I did it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, there's a lot that got left on the cutting room floor. I I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Leah Koenig, author of The Little Book of Jewish Sweets. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostra and Alison Roman, to this week, Baking Week, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish exclusive and delicious recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Bay Area listeners, join us to celebrate the 2019 Baking Week at Salt and Spine this Sunday, December 15th at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco for our annual Cookie Swap. Last year, we had over a thousand cookies being exchanged by some of our listeners, and this year we're upping the fun with a live podcast recording with the stars of the La Cocina Cookbook. Plus, we have baking demos from former guests Maria Ziska and Baking Week guest Hetel Vasavada. If you love cookies, you won't want to miss it. Find out more at civickitchensf.com, and we hope to see you there. And now, back to our conversation with Leah Koenig, author of The Little Book of Jewish Sweets. Who is sort of your audience for these little books? Yeah. Who do you envision as picking up these, li- like a little book of Jewish sweets? I mean, so I am a 
food writer who focuses almost exclusively on Jewish food. Mm-hmm. But for me, Jewish food is not exclusive to the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like any cuisine, like French cuisine or like, you know, Korean cuisine, like there is an audience beyond the particular community. So all of my books are for everybody. Yes. Um, and I actually grew up, my father's side of the family is, is not Jewish. So, okay. you know, I have in my own family, I have like a, some pluralism going on. Uh-huh. So I really, I really do think anybody who is interested Interested in uh, the culture and history of Jewish food, or just the the flavors, um, is that book would be for. But the little books in particular are meant to be sort of um, giftable, you know, like they're meant to be like, oh, you're you hosted me for Shabbat dinner, like here's uh-huh. a little a little gift for you, or like a wedding present, or like because they are they are tiny and cute, <laughs> right? They are, uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I see them as sort of um, as as kind of more in the gift the gift section, yeah, yeah. And you have a new book coming out or, or is out now, depending on when this episode airs, the Jewish cookbook from mm-hmm. Fiden, mm-hmm. um, which I think is interesting because you've spent the past couple of years sort of working on these little small, cute, giftable books that have a handful of recipes yeah. in them. And now this new book that's coming out is sort of a much more comprehensive. I haven't seen it yet, but I imagine a much more comprehensive look. How has, and you've sort of done that early on with modern Jewish cooking or did I get the title right? Yeah. Um, yeah. With modern Jewish cooking, your your second book, yeah, um, which is sort of larger and more wide ranging. How has your process sort of changed over time as as a cookbook author? Yeah, as you've sort of approached different types and styles of sure. cookbooks. Well, so the Jewish cookbook is the complete opposite of the little books uh-huh. in that it's a 400 plus <laughs> recipe kind of tome. Right. Um, that's meant Still to... giftable. Oh, totally giftable. <laughs> <laughs> Collect all four. Yes. Um, but it's really, it, you know, it was really meant to kind of fully capture kind of how Jews eat today across, across the globe. Uh-huh. Um, and whereas modern Jewish cooking and the, the little books are a little bit more, um, uh, innovative in that I try to bring in like contemporary flavors into the, into the dishes. I tried to keep things not boring, but, but more traditional for yeah. the, the, the Jewish cookbook. Although I have to say, you know, I, just because of the way I cook, like there are some co- more contemporary things, but sure. I wanted it to be more of a, um, of a artifact as well as a cookbook. Um, so for, you know, for all my books, I'm, I'm always looking at other cookbooks. I, I, I talk to people, um, who have made these foods. Um, and I, I try to like cook with people as much as possible, but I did that a lot more for the, for the Jewish cookbook. Right, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I live in Brooklyn, uh, and in New York, you know, there's just so many communities, um, of, Jew- of Jewish communities. So there's a Syrian Jewish community and a right. Russian Jewish community and, you know, Eastern European and so many different, um, types of, of Jewish people. So I, I tried to cook with as many of them as possible. Yeah. Um, which was the most fun, just like going into some almost always woman's kitchen and being like, how do you make, you know, this, um, North African stuffed potato and meat dish that I've heard of, but I've never made before. So it was really like kind of, um, uh, I think like Alan Lomax, you know, with co- collecting sound, uh, uh-huh. record, like field recordings. It was very much like a live field recording of like how they did it. Yeah. Um, and I very rarely used, I don't think ever used the exact recipe that we made together in the kitchen, but I would use it to then, you know, kind of, um, develop my own recipe. 
sure. from there. So, And where are you finding these people? How are you tapping into these communities to sort of learn these variants and these recipes? Yeah. I mean, I've been writing about Jewish food now for 10 years. Sure. So some of it is just people you meet along the way for stories. You know, I had written about uh, Ethiopian Jewish food for um, for an article once. So I went back to that that source and, okay. I, and I said, hey, can I come cook with you? Um, you know, she's actually this amazing woman, uh, BG Barhani, who lives in Harlem and has a great Ethiopian restaurant up there. Okay. Um, and she like invited me over and it was Friday and she was making, uh, Dorowat, which is, uh-huh. you know, the, the chicken stew. Right. Um, that Jewish Ethiopians use for Shabbat dinner. So, you know, like I, it was a dish I had never actually eaten. Um, before and she was cooking it and it just like the kitchen smelled like onions and her kids were running around. And so even though it was a dish I had never had, like it felt very, uh, familiar as like a dish that you would eat for, for Shabbat dinner. Right. Um, so for me, like, you know, those were the kind of moments where like I just was like, Oh, Jewish food is both really, really, really diverse. And also there's like a through line of the holidays on a through line of like, um, celebrating with family and all of that. So, yeah. um, the, the cooking I did with other people was, was the best. And I feel like I didn't quite answer your question, but <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. <laughs> oh, but actually I will say like, I also travel a lot for cooking demos and things like that. So whenever I would be somewhere like Seattle, which has a huge, um, Greek and, uh, from the Isle of Rhodes, uh, Jewish community uh-huh. or Montreal, where there's a big Moroccan Jewish community, I would always try to like, find someone who knew someone to get me in the kitchen with them. So right. that was, that was a great, great part of the process. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned looking at other cookbooks yeah. as, as tools for, for you and your work. Mm-hmm. Are there particular authors or particular books even that have been influential to you either in your career or, or as you were working on specific books of yours? Sure. I mean, from the Jewish side of things, I mean, Joe Nathan's uh-huh. works are like, irreplaceable. Yes. Um, Gil Marks, uh, who uh-huh. passed away a couple of years ago, but, um, is a wonderful person who, and used to be like someone I called all the time to be like, Hey Gil, like why did this or that happen? Like his books are great. Um, Joyce Goldstein, who uh-huh. I think is uh, based out here still. She is, yes. And, um, Claudia Rodin. Uh-huh. Uh, those are kind of like the four, you know, the most important, um, from the, from the Jewish perspective. Right. Um, you know, and then there's, you know, like obviously like everybody, the Otolenki books Uh are hugely influential, um, in terms of how, how I cook personally. And then how, you know, I actually, (laughs) when I was working on, um, modern Jewish cooking, Uh uh, I did not, I purposefully did not buy Jerusalem because I did not want to accidentally like steal one of his recipes. Sure. Yeah. So I waited until I was done developing the recipes to buy that book. Right. <laughs> Cause I was like, Oh God, I'm That's totally going to accidentally steal something. Yeah. You might internalize it yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so his works and then, I mean, you know, Samin Nosrat, mm-hmm. his works are incredibly influential, uh, to me. Who else? I, early on, when I was first learning to cook, there's a, a guy named Peter Burley. Okay. Um, he wrote a book called Fresh Food Fast, which for me was like, I feel like everybody has that first cookbook when they're learning to cook that they're like, this is what I learned to cook with. Yes. Um, that was the one for me. Okay. I think it was co-written by Melissa Clark um, okay. before she started doing a lot of her own cookbooks. Right. Um, but that was just a kind of random book that was like so, so influential to me. I still cook from it sometimes. And you stumbled upon that book in college? Um, not in college, but like right after. Right after. Okay. Yeah. 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 When I first moved to New York and was first really cooking like in my own kitchen without 
the 17 other roommates. <laughs> sure. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, when I was working on the Jewish cookbook, um, my, my own kind of, uh, book collection quadrupled. I mean, like I found these amazing, like just like the, the, the cooking of um, Cochin of the Jews of Cochin, India, or like the cooking of um, Jews in Greece and uh-huh. like all these books from like the eighties and nineties that um, didn't necessarily have recipes that I wanted to like focus my own recipes also off of, but were just hugely influential in terms of what recipes should be in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've spent so much time researching books, researching mm-hmm. other cookbooks, as you just noted, like mm-hmm. spending lots of time with them growing your own collection. Mm-hmm. What role do you think cookbooks sort of play in our society? Oh, such an important role. Um, you know, I feel like cookbooks are both manuals that, you know, like instruction manuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I just said, like, I feel like everybody has that one cookbook that for them was like how they learned to cook. Um, right. but they are also snapshots in time. Um, and you know, even like Claudia Rodin's um, book of Jewish food, which came out in the nineties, I believe. Yeah. Um, is in my mind, like a perfect book. Like she did such an amazing job with it. And yet 30 years later, Jewish food has evolved, um, in a way. Like she doesn't, I think, have any Ethiopian Jewish recipes in there because the Ethiopian community was sort of just moving, uh, to Israel and kind of, you know, putting itself like out there on the scene as like, Oh, you should pay attention to these recipes too. Uh So it's not a fault of the book, but like Jewish food just keeps evolving. Um, so, so they are really like a snapshot in time of how, how Jews were eating at that moment or how people are eating at that moment if we're talking. Um, kind of more broadly about cookbooks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, so we always end with a little game. Okay. So we have some cards next to you. Okay. I thought we'd play a little game and I haven't filtered. I haven't like gone through with a kosher filter on these ingredients. Oh, okay. Okay. So we're going to draw and they're going to mix and match and you're going to discard if you want to keep kosher for the purposes of <laughs> sure, the game. Sure. Um, but I thought maybe we would give you the option of creating some recipes based on the ingredients you have in front of you oh. that fit in one of your three trilogy books. So either an appetizer, a main course or a dessert pulling on some of the relying on some of the ingredients that you're pulling from these stacks here so we'll play a round or two see how it goes um there's no limit however many cards you want to draw um so let's do the first one okay so i just should pull some cards and then talk about what i would make with them yes so pull a couple ingredients tell us what they are and then um, I'm going to discard the tempeh because I don't like tempeh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> tofu, there we go. All right. So I got tofu. Okay. Thyme, broccoli, and I'm going to pull, not using scrapple, not using fish sauce, not using pork roll. Oh, yeah. Sriracha. Okay. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to have to uh, uh, do some kosher editing. There. Yes. Um, okay, so what did we end with? We okay, have tofu. We have tofu thyme which is actually my favorite herb okay so nice, nice. Um, vegetable is broccoli and then uh, sriracha okay um all right well let's see well yeah. these are definitely uh not what you would consider jewish ingredients uh-huh. from the get-go but i think i would put these in the um the feasts category just okay. because there's a there's a solid protein and a solid vegetable i think i would make a tofu schnitzel Okay. And schnitzel is one of my absolute favorite, uh, just kind of quick, you know, 
dinners that also can be dressed up to be fancy enough for to be a feast. Yeah. So I think I would um, make a marinade that had some thyme in it and... Um, Maybe I would use dried thyme even, even okay. though I normally like fresh. Sure. Um, and put it in maybe in like the dredging flour. Yeah. Um, and I think I would make a, a tofu schnitzel and with broccoli and sriracha. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. I think for the sriracha, I might, um, do some kind of sauce with it. Like, uh, maybe I would, you know what I would do? I, this might not be delicious, but I would. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We don't actually have to eat this. Okay. We're just envisioning it. <laughs> I would, um, reduce some Manischewitz wine down, okay. um, to a syrup. Okay. And mix it with a sriracha, like kind of make like a honey, like sriracha thing, but use the syrup and drizzle that over the top. Okay. Yeah. I think it could be delicious. Yeah. I've never made a tofu schnitzel. Do you, do you have to press the tofu? Yeah, yeah, yeah you do. You and get it's, a lot of moisture out. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can do the thing where you freeze the block of tofu. Um, I don't usually make it. I usually do meat versions, right. but yeah. chicken. Um, but yeah, you can definitely make it. It would work. Yeah. yeah. It does. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. Let's do cool. another round. All right. I'm going to do mm, chives. Okay. Carrots. Uh-huh. And beans. Beans, just it just says beans. Beans is the beans pro- of your yeah. choosing. Okay, yeah. protein beans, flavor chives, and vegetable carrot, and I'll pull a secret ingredient okay. just for fun. Let's see how this goes. Wagyu beef. I'll do it. Okay. Okay. All right. I know exactly what I'm going to make because if you have beef and you have beans and you have carrots, you're making chalent, uh-huh. um, which is not in the little books, but could be a part of a feast. Right. It's yes. A tra- it's a traditional. Um, Shabbat, uh, lunch dish. Okay. And it's the, the cool thing about it is that it actually cooks overnight at a very, very low heat because there's a, um, prohibition against cooking with active fire uh-huh. or electricity on, on Shabbat. Right. Um, so people now use crock pots, but they used to bring their, um, their chalent, uh, dishes to like a local bakery that, um, was off for the Sabbath and it would cook in like the residual heat of the oven uh-huh. overnight and people would then come pick it up the next day. Right. Um, but it's this amazing, uh, kind of cassoulet-esque, uh, mixture of beans, often barley, um, carrots, potatoes, beef, and the chives would give it a little bit of, um, you know, a little, little something extra. Right. A little pop of color, yeah. freshness. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, it's one of those dishes that's like, it's like a coma in a, in a, yes. <laughs> a food coma in a Dutch oven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Right. That one came together nicely. Yeah, it really did. Should we do one more? Sure. Why not? I'm going to pull, can I pull like three secret Oh yeah. Go for it. Okay. There are no oh rules here. Although yeah, oh the goodness. secret ingredients can be sort of wild and obscure. All right. I'm going to do liver. Okay, we've got liver. I'm going to do watermelon. Okay, liver and watermelon. Gross. I'm intrigued already. I mean, I'm just pulling. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you tired of political podcasts, peddling horse paste, and man supplements? Then listen to The Bituation Room with me, Francesca Fiorentini, featuring progressive comedians, activists, and experts. We break down the week's news with plenty of laughs and ridiculousness, which we desperately need, while diving deep into juicy left topics like remaking the police, abortion rights, and why Jeff Bezos is a cyborg. Get The Bituation Room right to your ear holes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere except Facebook. Podcasts on Facebook are going away June 3rd, so 
consider yourself poked. The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution. A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.